You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Come one, come all, to the greatest show on earth. We've got bearded ladies, wild tigers, sword swallowers, skeleton men, and the most odd humans you'll see in your life. For the price of just one ticket, you'll be transported into a world far from here. Don't blink, because you won't want to miss a thing. Welcome back, friend. So this past week has been super fascinating for me. When y'all chose the theme for this episode, I was so excited because I really didn't know much about circuses and sideshows, but boy, do I now. For this episode, we're going to briefly look at circuses and sideshows separately and then take a deeper dive into the sideshow and its performers. And I'll even introduce you to the world's first global superstar, so stay tuned till the end. And without further ado, grab a snack, snuggle in, get settled, and let's get started. Circuses and sideshows have become a really big part of mainstream and pop culture media, with everything from American Horror Story, The Greatest Showman, even Dumbo. I see you 90s kids, I know you love Dumbo. (laughs) But what a lot of people don't know and what I didn't know is that there's a distinct difference between a sideshow and the circus. So let's look at the circus first. Circuses have been around since ancient Rome They were places where horses and chariot races would be held, but they were totally different from what we now know as circuses. The modern circus didn't really come about until the late 1700s with Philip Atsley in England. So at first he was a military cavalryman and he worked with horses, but after he retired he decided to take his show on the road and do horse performances, and he did it in a ring, what would later come to represent one of the uh, symbols of the circus. But anyways, he started out with horses, and he would add on different performers, acrobats, gymnasts, people to ride the horses, and it started to gradually turn into the kind of circus that we know it as today. But once the idea of the circus came to the States, it totally got a new makeover. Now, when you think of a circus, what pops into your brain? What name pops into your brain? I'm sure it must be P.T. Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on earth, right? Usually if you're in North America. And actually, P.T. Barnum and Bailey were not the first people to have a circus in the United States. It was actually a man called John Bill Ricketts, and he was the one who introduced the Big Top, or the large tent for circuses, in 1825. But the reason we know P.T. Barnum is because he took the circus and the sideshow to a whole nother level. So right now, we're going to focus on the sideshow and just kind of leave the circus in the dust for a little bit. We'll come back to it later, I promise. So P.T. Barnum started his sideshow at the perfect time. In the 1840s, the whole culture of the United States was changing. People were gaining more time for fun, activities, and leisure things, and they were looking for a cheap place to spend their money. 
In addition, lots of immigrant workers were looking for a cheap place to unwind and spend their money. And sometimes, you know, English wasn't their first language. So it was the perfect form of visual entertainment for them. And for everyone, really. P.T. Barnum's first sideshow act was Joyce Heth, the supposed 161-year-old woman. And this was in the year 1835. Joyce Heth was actually a slave, because unfortunately slavery was still around at the time. And P.T. Barnum bought her and started to display her saying that she was a 161-year-old nanny of George Washington. And P.T. Barnum advertised the crap out of her. Like, posters everywhere. He would hire people to go talk to other people to get word of mouth going on. He created this whole big craze surrounding her, and people were hooked. But eventually... Some of the cracks started to show and people questioned whether she was actually 161 years old, (laughs) which, duh. And unfortunately, a few years later, she died. But P.T. Barnum did not let that get him down. He sold tickets to her autopsy, which is disgusting, but nonetheless, he did it. And people bought those tickets. And they discovered that she was only in her 80s. But people didn't care at that point. They were already in love with whatever P.T. Barnum was doing. And he made a lot of money. Enough so that he created what was called the American Museum. It was not like a museum that you and I know now. It was called a dime museum. And dime museums were really the grandfather of modern museums. You paid 10 cents to go and look at just a bunch of stuff. There were plants and animals and all sorts of crazy science things, history things. And it was just a madhouse of (laughs) educational things were as educational as they could be at the time. But the thing that made the American Museum stand out was just the sheer volume of things that were inside the museum. Now, when I was researching, I found a really cool website that is a virtual reconstruction of the museum. You can go and click on different things and explore the museum. And there's also a cool little scavenger hunt in there as well. So I highly recommend that you check out that website if you're interested. And I'll leave a link to it in the show notes in the description of this episode. So back to the museum. What was inside of it? Well, it had human oddities, both living and non-living, animals, specimens in jars, plants, astronomy labs, lecture halls, wax museums, even Native Americans would come and be paid to perform traditional songs and dances. It was always changing. The exhibits were always changing. And P.T. Barnum advertised it as a place for education and entertainment. At its peak, the museum was open 15 hours a day and had as many as 15,000 visitors a day. And this was because of the performers that he contracted. People like Myrtle Corbin, the four-legged girl, William Henry Johnson, a.k.a. Zip the Pinhead, Josephine Boysturm, 
the bearded lady, Isaac W. Sprague, the human skeleton, and Charles Stratton, a.k.a. General Tom Thumb. The museum grew and grew in popularity, and soon other dime museums added these kinds of performers, and it was taking away from his business. So, being the entrepreneurial um, scheming man that he was, he decided that he could make more money on the road, taking these acts, taking these performers on the road. And what he did was make contracts with circuses to lower his travel expenses. Sideshows and circuses had worked together before in the past, but not to the level that P.T. Barnum created. I feel like I've said not to the level like three times already in this episode, and if you get anything out of it, it's that P.T. Barnum was the most extra person in the world. (laughs) But anyways, so in the past, sideshows had just been maybe one or two performers that would try to get you know, funnel people into the circus from the outside. But what PT did was just create this whole, like, city of performances around the circus that would trap people and just funnel them into the circus like the main big top area. And boy, did it work. But other than really great advertising, what made people interested in sideshows in the first place? Humans have always been fascinated with unique bodies. Even from prehistory, there's been evidence of cave paintings depicting people with abnormal bodies. Kings and queens in Europe had all kinds of performers that were a little bit different than the ordinary person, you know, other than jesters. It's been happening for a long time. And these differently bodied people have been called many things over the years, but in the 1800s, they were called freaks. And now I don't like this word, but this is what they were called. And we're gonna talk about the meaning of this word and the emotions behind this word a little bit later on. So in the 1800s, people were becoming more and more interested in science. Air quotes, I'm using air quotes. Science and abnormal things and odd people. It was a family activity to go gawk at people and things that were different from themselves. There was also an increased interest in the outside world and other countries, which was great because many of the performers were either from other countries or advertised to be from other countries. And this was fascinating. But it wasn't just pure curiosity that made people come to the dime museums and the sideshows. The advertising and portrayal of these performers, these quote-unquote freaks, was just over-the-top amazing. It was some of the first viral marketing there was. They were really sensationalized and created to be like celebrities. They were celebrities. At the museums and the sideshows, there would be souvenirs that you could buy, you know, depicting these performers. There was like trading cards called Card de la Viste, People sold kisses from the performers. It was just amazing. And so many of the performers made 
bank, some more than others. So there were three classifications of freaks. In the 1800s, when we say the word freak or freak show, in this context, it's not meant to be rude or mean. In fact, the freaks were respected by members of the outside community and it created a sense of community within that group of so-called freaks. So in these group of freaks, there were three classifications, the born freak, the made freak, and the novelty freaks or novelty acts. The list of performers that I talked about above, like the four-legged girl, the skeleton man, the bearded lady, those are the born freaks. The made freaks are the tattooed people or people who modify their body themselves in some way. And then lastly is the novelty acts, the sword swallowers, the fire swallowers, a lot of swallowing of things that you should not be <laughs> in sideshows. And also people like the blockheads, people who would like nail, have like hammer nails into their heads, which, ugh gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> so the group of freaks that earned the most money were the born freaks. And this was for several reasons. Number one, they were just so different from you know what the mainstream population was used to. So people were really interested in them. And second is because of the way they were portrayed. They were often dressed in really fine clothing and they were eloquent and witty and they, you know, acted just like quote unquote normal people. They had families, they had children, they did normal people things. And that was just fascinating for people. There are just too many of these born freaks to mention in this podcast. So if you guys want me to do like a little mini series about different um, sideshow freaks, I would be more than happy to. So just let me know. Leave a comment um, on the podcast Instagram and let me know what you think. Maybe I'll leave like a little poll or something up there for you guys. So on the whole... The born freaks and the other freaks were treated better than if they would not have been a part of the freak show community. And and it was that. It, it simply was a community. People found a family and a place to be themselves. But just like with anything in life, you know, it's not all black and white. There was some exploitation, but, you know, not as bad in the early days. But as the market started to be more saturated, as there were more fake performers, uh, what's called a gaff, a gaff performer, once there were more of these, then the treatment of the performers, of the freaks, became much worse. And some of these performers were exploited and there there was exploitation that went on that's for sure so as the years went on and the freak show changed it changed for the worst to be perfectly honest with you i read a really good book while i was researching called freak show uh, by robert bogdan and in it he describes the transformation of the freak and the freak show in the 19th and 20th century 
He says, freak is not a person with a certain physical state. Rather, freak is a state of mind, a set of practices, a way of thinking about and presenting people. It is not a person, but the enactment of a tradition, the performance of a stylized presentation. And the stylized presentation, the performance, the portrayal of these freaks went from fascinating to grotesque. Beginning in the 1880s and on into the 1900s, freak shows became more and more grotesque and moved away from mysterious and fun and educational to wanting to just gross people out and make money. And there was more exploitation and less money. Also, Medicine was advancing and people were discovering why people were born with some physical differences. And this created a change in public opinion and it moved away from curiosity to pity and disgust. Instead of being held to the same status as a celebrity, born freaks were now pitied and looked down upon. And unfortunately, another horrible thing came into the picture called eugenics, which is basically the practice of trying to create genetically superior air quotes, so many air quotes in this episode, <laughs> genetically superior humans. That was coming into popularity. And stupid freaking people thought that freaks were degrading the morality of America and some states went so far as to ban freak shows and sideshows altogether. The sideshow came in and out of popularity until the 1940s when it finally stopped. There were one or two left in the country but they were nowhere near what they had been in the past. Some sideshows still remain around the world trying to preserve the tradition of the sideshow, a.k.a. the freak show, though. There's some in Coney Island. There's some in Portland. So they do still exist, but I don't know if they'll ever reach the level of fame that they had in the 1800s. But do not despair, my friend. It is time for our final happy thought that I promised you about the global superstar. His name was Charles Stratton, and he was known as General Tom Thumb. Now, Charles was only 102 centimeters tall, and his life was so fascinating. He started working with P.T. Barnum when he was four years old, and he came from a very poor family. But in his lifetime, he did so many amazing things. He met the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, and the royal family and performed for them. He met Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln loved him. Tom Thumb made so much money for him and his family that by the age of nine, he could have retired. But he loved performing so much. He traveled the world. He wore incredibly expensive costumes and incredibly expensive bespoke suits and clothes for himself. He had yachts and carriages, and he even created a mansion for him and his wife that fit their body size. He had stairs and kitchen equipment and everything to make their life easier. 
By the time he did his last tour, he had gone to 587 cities around the world, did 1,471 shows, and he was loved and respected worldwide. And he became the world's first international celebrity by traveling to Europe. He traveled to Canada, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, everywhere. Sometimes he would go to countries and people would already know his name. He was indeed the world's first international global superstar. All right, my friend, we have come to the end. Another podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And I would be so delighted if you had time to review this podcast, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, that's okay. You, you don't have to. But, you know, it would be appreciated. And also, it would be appreciated if you hit subscribe um, and you went and followed the For the Love of History's Instagram. If you don't mind, if you don't mind, because you don't want to miss anything, do ya? You don't want to miss a thing. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that little Aerosmith break. But anyways, all right, that is all I have for you today. I hope you have a great day or a great night or wherever you are. Try to do something that makes you smile today, and please stay safe out there. And until the next time, Bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>